1: Welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah.
2: Hi all
1: and Zoe. Hey everybody. On today's show, we're going to be talking about a topic of sports washing, which is a term that we'll define here very quickly, of unpleasant entities using the world of sports as a way of laundering their reputations effectively, of burnishing their good image in the eyes of the world. Um, we're talking about it specifically here in November because The World Cup is about to kick off in the country of Qatar, a country that, as we'll dive into, has a load of issues that it is trying to effectively push aside by hosting the world's most popular sporting event. And that's only the most prominent of a trend that has become increasingly common in recent years. Uh, I, I guess to put more of a def definition on the term, we have an article from Taylor Lalletta in August uh, in Yahoo News about LIV Golf, which is a, an entity brought to us by Saudi Arabia, uh, another country with some problems. Um, you know, trying to define the term sports washing. Uh, Noah, I think you have it in front of you.
2: I do. Uh, Richard Lapchick, director of the Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sport, says uh, sports washing is when a nation tries to use the love that people have and the passion they have for sports to help them ignore what might be the reality of the politics of the country. And Richard Lapchick has particular latitude to talk about what sports washing is because he led the sports boycott of apartheid South, South Africa pardon me, in the 1970s including convincing Muhammad Ali to not take fights in South Africa. So if anyone can tell you
1: how long (laughs) this has been going on and what it is, it's this person. Yeah. um, The term sports washing itself is a fairly recent term, but it's obviously a practice that has long been in use. Uh, The article also brings up the 1936 Berlin Olympics, a very famous example of a, terrible regime trying to use sports to burnish its global image.
3: I think it's also important to recognize that the same practice can is not necessarily like geopolitical, like it can apply to individuals and to companies until basically any entity, regardless of whether it has anything to do with international politics.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, the thing about sports and something we've discussed on Punching Out in the past is like People build community around it. It is, for better and often for worse, a tool for bringing people together, for bringing out genuine emotion in people in a way that so very few things do anymore. You know, our media is so fractured and everybody has their own streaming service and their one specific program that they watch, but sports continues to be one thing that does bring people together and so when you have a force that powerful it's only inevitable that it's going to be used by unsavory sorts.
3: Yeah and it's also sports are also something that are often lauded as being like apolitical or something that can really bring people together across political and other types of divides. So I think that it is kind of a perfect fit for this type of reputation laundering that we're talking about, because it is something that really can bring people together in uncommon circumstances. Like you'll meet people being fans of a sports team that you never would have met or associated with otherwise. Um, So it does have like, it can have a positive effect on society, but in the hands of, you know, certain people trying to make money and certain capitalists it can also have a chilling effect on, Our understanding of our rights
2: yeah and i would even drill a little bit deeper on um what uh ryan you mentioned you know so much of everything else is fractured particularly now that there just aren't that many common experiences period and that's partly because of you know the the proliferation of streaming services and the ongoing kind of um if you're if you're somebody who's regularly engaging with things like you know film or whatnot the the fact that you often end up having to kind of pick a side on certain things uh, you have to decide what makes you a, which movies make you a moral person or which singers uh, make you worthy of being taken seriously or whatever but the the other thing that that I think of is we don't really have any social or uh, any social inve- or societal, I guess is the word I'm looking for, investment in anything else. Sports is, at least in the United States, one of the few things that's still getting funded, like an entertainment product that is, you know, worth putting out there. It's basically that, and you know, existing or or blockbusters based off of existing IPs. I, I've seen a lot of testimonials from people who disdain sports for you know decades on end. And kind of got brought to it now because what else are you going to do? Everything else costs too much money.
1: <laughs>
3: yeah, it's one of the only like top level kind of accessible cultural items that we really have on like a global scale, which is one reason why it has ongoing appeal. And it really can inspire, like you said, these pure and genuine emotions from people. And that's not necessarily a bad thing.
1: Uh, Zoe, you mentioned earlier about this image of sports as being apolitical, and that's an image that's maybe cracked a bit in recent years. Uh, when you said that, it brought to mind the heated debates in this country over like, the racial justice protests led by Colin Kaepernick in the NFL, which spread to all sports and over the course of uh, 2020 became a global phenomenon, um, but were increasingly popular among athletes in those leagues even as some fans clamored that they should shut up and play or leave politics out of the sport and in turn people argued about you know the ways in which politics have always been in sports you know famously the national anthem is played before games there are military flyovers there's all these things that are
3: Well, in the United States, at least. Other countries don't necessarily do things at quite that level. But, yeah.
1: But, again, we're starting to be more critical of the idea that these are just neutral playing fields. And yet, at the same time, there are these entities that want us to stay under that impression. That want us to, you know, not criticize uh, the owners of LIV Golf because a the product they're putting out there is unrelated to the beheading of journalists
2: <laughs> can I, can i just include a note i have we talked about this what liv golf stands for
1: <laughs> no go on please it's
2: this is the dumbest thing liv golf is that's supposed to be a roman numeral it's supposed oh, to be no. 54 uh, oh for, no! Uh, some number of of uh, golf holes. Uh,
1: it's it, like if you got a three on every hole, which is right, basically impossible. That would be your score.
2: Yeah. So for the first three months, if people were like, "How do I pronounce this? Is it liv? Is it live? Do I have to go look up what Latin for fifty four is? That kind of thing, because y- you can't figure it out. And then, of course, in the case of of they they explicitly went after star golfers, uh-huh. many of whom were probably pretty attracted by the fact that you would get to play at Trump courses, if if we're being honest. That that seems to have been the profile they looked for.
3: Oh, it's, so it's like they're the anti-woke yeah. gol- golf thing. No,
2: notably woke golfers. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, the notably woke sport of golf. I do think there, there was, um, like, some PGA stuff did get, like, canceled or rescheduled due to, like, Trump associations in past years, so that they probably saw that they were filling a niche there.
2: Yeah, I, I think, uh, what is it, uh, when Phil Mickelson signed up, he basically admitted that he knows full well how horrible Saudi Arabia is but that this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to change how the PGA Tour works.
1: It was very strange, because the argument from golfers for breaking off into this new tour is that, well, frankly, Saudi Arabia was going to pay them a lot more money than they were getting from the PGA Tour. And that's exactly the power of it all, right? They have a lot of money with which to... Put on projects like this uh it brings to mind for me you know i follow formula one and a great many f1 races are held in these uh totalitarian countries where they just happen to have a lot of money with which to spend on hosting an f1 race uh, bahrain saudi arabia qatar all events on the f1 calendar
2: it's notably the same with mixed martial arts which often builds entirely new arenas uh, for fights, and then of course the the fighters are kind of subject to the fact that if if you don't compete well enough to satisfy, uh, whatever emir or sultan your or uh, totalitarian dictator untitled, uh, you're fighting in front of, then uh, Dana White is going to be very mad at you because those guys don't tend to mess around, and Dana White would like to keep his head, you know, attached to the rest of his body.
3: Yeah, and you know, that's exactly what we're talking about is like when organizations put these events on their calendar and say like, hey, we're going to do this event in Qatar or Saudi Arabia or Saudi Arabia sponsoring this event, like someone who is not, say, geopolitically aware or well read on these topics will be like, oh, well, that must mean that this is okay. You know, it kind of is, it, It. it's intentionally appealing to like an uncritical thinker. And then that also kind of gives people who defend these sorts of practices, the ammo to say like, well, you know, why are you so uptight about this? This is what everybody is doing. Um, So, and that's, that's kind of, I think a good way of thinking about what we're talking about when we're talking about sports washing
1: yeah um just to give one more example and this is something I would not know about if not for my uh, roommate having it on last week or so uh, the WWE recently held an event in Saudi Arabia which I'm told is now an annual thing they do um, mm-hmm. you know two great immoral regimes tasting great together I guess <laughs> and the purpose of course is to I mean, it really does work as an advertisement for the regime, whether that's the stated intent or not. That is how it comes off on TV. Again, if you're an uncritical consumer, if you're not really focused on reading between the lines of these things, that's not good.
3: Yeah, it makes you think like, oh, like, what if I got to like travel internationally and go to this event? Like, you know, I follow hockey and I think all the time, like, wouldn't it be cool to go to like a (laughs) world championship event in another country? Like that would be like kind of one of the pinnacle experiences as a fan of an organization. So when you're selling like events like this to super fans, you're kind of getting them on board with what with the practice of what's going on in these countries and the business practices of these individuals. So.
1: And you're also like requiring, you're putting the workers, the athletes themselves in the position of, do I speak out against this? Do I, you know, just do my job and say nothing. It's not an easy position for them to be in.
3: Definitely. Athletes, coaches, support staff, like from top to bottom, it's like, You are, whether intentionally or not, you're involving your entire paid staff and potentially volunteer staff in this geopolitical situation where, you know, they could lose their jobs if they don't agree with it, if they don't fall in line.
2: I I actually believe, if I remember correctly, that after the first Saudi Arabia event, there were rumors of uh, an internal revolt at WWE among the talent because of several people kind of realizing this is really messed up. Like, um, you know, as uh, something Vince McMahon found, because I think the first one was still under his leadership. Vince McMahon found a way, found something to do that, uh, professional wrestlers were not okay with. That's, uh, (laughs) I didn't think that line was gonna, was gonna be found, but there it is. And I particularly like the peer pressure kind of metaphor, I forget which one of you said it of like, you know, everyone's kind of involved in this. Everybody's hands are dirty because that kind of permeates for everybody. It permeates for fans because it's, you know, no team or organization or sport is purer than any other. So we can't hold each other accountable. You know, if, if you know somebody who's a golf fan (laughs) <laughs> I don't know why you would, but if you did and they decided that, you know, they, they so love Phil Mickelson and Brooks Kepka and whatever, that they're going to change over to 54 golf, you know, the PGA, the PGA tour sucks too. It's still full of horrible people. You're not doing anything there or um, with something like, um, you know, with the, we've, we've talked on here about, the scandal and waiting that is international free agent signings in baseball, all 30 teams do that. So it doesn't matter which team, all 30 teams are doing human trafficking basically. So it, it causes that for us as fans. And then it causes that for the athletes and coaches who all know that they are in some small way defined by, and helping to prop up a structure that depends on, I mean, at this point, staggering abuse so it, it just lashes everybody to this monster
3: yeah and you know as, as you were saying about like people kind of doing purity testing on the media that we consume and saying like oh well you know you like that that's not good for you to like that like that's problematic and i work with teenagers so that's something that i have to deal with all the time is you know we're always kind of calling each other out about our consumption of media and whatever entertainment that we're interested in without actually like recognizing that it's not the consumption that is driving what's happening. We we see a lot of things every day. We might even pay for some of those things like our streaming services, whatever sports we watch, if we have to subscribe to different channels to watch those sports. But at the end of the day, our consumption is not what's driving these political things happening like it's a small chunk of their revenue but the real money changing hands is happening at such a larger scale and the real danger is not paying for it but if they succeed in making people okay with these things you know which can range from just kind of garden variety workplace mistreatment to gross human rights abuses um, as i think we're going to get into later
1: just one more item for this segment. Uh, I do want to make a note that not every athlete has gone quietly along with these sorts of stunts. Um, there have been small but notable acts of protest against uh, these sorts of events. Uh, when F1 had its first race in Qatar last year, Lewis Hamilton wore a like rainbow pride helmet for that race as a way of like protesting the country's ban on homosexuality and you know that's only a small gesture you could argue he could do more he could boycott the race x y and z but again it's a very tough position for him as an athlete as someone who is pursuing a championship at the time to do um and that's the point of it right it's to Used money as leverage over people who may not otherwise want to sell the product you're selling. Having sufficiently defined, I think, the term sports washing, we're going to take a break here. And when we come back, uh, we'll talk more at length about the upcoming World Cup and what it has taken to make that World Cup happen. None of it's very good, but we'll be back.
3: You're listening to Punching Out on W-A-Y-O-L-P Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.
1: Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Zoe.
3: Hello again.
1: In the first segment of today's show, we laid out the term sports washing, the idea that uh, certain unsavory entities have been using the world of sports as means of burnishing their public reputations and putting athletes and fans into the uncomfortable position of deciding whether their fandoms or their jobs are worth risking over, like, the fact that their favorite team or franchise or sport is allying with a country doing human rights abuses. It's, um, it's a thing practice that has grown increasingly widespread. There are examples that we didn't even get to in the first segment. But the most prominent example and really the reason for the timing of this week's show is the upcoming World Cup to be held in Qatar. This is a decision that was made by FIFA back in 2010. Um, It was controversial at the time and has only grown more controversial since. Um, In 2010, Tatar was bidding up against uh, countries that have either hosted the World Cup before or have traditionally or have hosted events on this scale before. Um, The USA was one of them, Japan, South Korea, those two countries actually had hosted a World Cup jointly in 2002, and Australia were the contenders for hosting this tournament. And a lot of people outside the soccer world and many in the soccer world were surprised that Qatar, a small but oil-rich nation in the Middle East, won out over those competitors. Um, Qatar is the smallest country to host the World Cup in the modern era by population At the time, several of the cities where they planned to have stadiums in did not exist. They were just sites in the desert. And they were proposing that the games would be held in air-conditioned, open-air stadiums in order to combat the heat of the summer in the Middle East. Uh, World Cup has traditionally been held in June and July. You'll note uh, we're in November right now. The air-conditioned stadiums did not come to fruition the whole soccer calendar has been thrown out of whack in order to accommodate this tournament, which would be a source of controversy all on its own. If not for the fact that the tournament has been made possible through the use of just ungodly amounts of slave labor effectively. Um, So yeah,
2: I would, I I think I would argue that any amount of slave labor is ungodly. Yes. I get what you mean.
1: Like, particularly galling amounts
2: so how did uh cotter end up hosting the world cup what do we know now that perhaps we didn't know but could guess at in 2010
1: some money may have allegedly possibly changed hands in the bidding process there may have been some light minor bribery involved um, the head of fifa at the time is no longer the head of fifa for you know, who could say why? Uh, yeah, it it was whispered at, at the time that Qatar had bought its way to hosting this tournament. And those allegations have only had more evidence come up in their favor. Um, but they're still hosting the tournament. They still got what they wanted. They still get this big shining jewel to call their own.
3: Yeah, and it was basically raised, I think, from the moment that Qatar was awarded the bid that labor conditions in Qatar are not friendly, and that huge amounts of uh, migrant labor would be required to build the necessary facilities. And that all came to pass, like, huge amounts of migrants were brought into the country, usually... Um, At the behest of the contractors who were actually doing the building and supplying, they essentially did indentured servitude on these people by charging them money for passage into Qatar and for their housing and room and board. Basically these people have been unable to pay back the debts to these companies. Um, And that's like kind of the best case scenario is that you're in debt to this company. You're also likely dealing with severe injuries, possibly illness from inadequate food provided by your employer, inadequate shelter, poor hygienic conditions at your basically labor camp. Um, And it, I think it's especially upsetting because it was known at the time that this is what was going to happen. And it was just allowed to happen and basically minimized and ignored by FIFA.
1: Because the world cup is such a massive event. It had ramifications outside the world of soccer as well. Uh, I think there were reports that uh, some money wound up in the hands of French president, Nicolas Sarkozy and, in return, France gave Qatar its vote in the hosting bidding, and also possibly some military planes. I I can't believe I'm
2: hearing new things that about how horrible Nicolas Sarkozy is in 2022.
3: It's the gift that keeps on giving.
1: <laughs> um, I want
2: punching re- way above his height.
1: <laughs> read a bit from this article um, in Rolling Stone by Matt Sullivan. Just to you know, get to the gist of it, here's sort of the nut graph. According to the eight-year investigation by Equidem into the labor conditions under 16 construction firms scheduled for release on Thursday and shared exclusively with Rolling Stone, World Cup stadium workers were subjected to captive and controllable conditions as Qatar's government and FIFA shielded forced labor under the veneer of reform. The relevations come as more leading rights organizations and watchdogs are sounding the activist alarm with confidential and undercover access to dozens of migrant whistleblowers concerning unaccounted worker deaths and families of migrants left uncompensated and homeless, while the Qataris and their partners generate up to $17 billion once the tournament kicks off this month. This, says Equidem Executive Director Mustafa Kadri, is a World Cup built on modern slavery um kind of lays it all out there don't know how much more explicit we can be
3: and you know we have these articles which really go into detail um about what's been going on and there's been huge amounts of really like high quality journalism being done about this world cup in qatar ever ever since it was announced um but of course that's not what most people are going to see You know, if they watch the World Cup on television, obviously it's probably not going to be talked about very much. You know, we're going to hear maybe some sly allusions to it.
1: Right. Broadcast partners are not going to be keen to offend the golden goose, effectively, that is FIFA and the World Cup. And so they'll be very hush hush about the elephant in the room.
3: Yeah, so it's going to be a surreal experience, I think, actually seeing it. And I'm trying to think, like, you know, I, I don't think the U.S. men's team is really going to be of much note here. I, I Correct me if I'm wrong. but They qualified. Eh, good yeah. for them. Um, but, like, you know, we're not going to see coverage in traditional United States media outlets about this sort of thing, you know, unless perhaps someone perceives it as advantageous to I think pumping something else up at the same time you know like they're not gonna go all in on this because it's not considered a story that's beneficial to to the whole to the whole enterprise of sports capitalism (laughs) Um, because if we're calling out Qatar about this issue then we're gonna have to start calling out a lot of other things
1: right like The last World Cup was held in Russia just four years ago. So, you know, there is a an element of, you know, is this that different? And as we've discussed before on Punching Out, like the sheer fact of hosting these mega events inevitably requires labor abuses and uh, the displacement of people living in the areas where the stadiums are built and where. New security zones are established in order to, you know, ostensibly keep fans safe, but, you know, hush, hush, usher homeless people away from the tourists.
2: Yeah, nothing to see here getting, turning into more of a police state around here and see what happens, see how, so how much people get used to it, because God knows you're not going to be using any of these facilities too much longer after the event is over. I feel um Ryan, I'm sorry did did we get your in the in the quote you had from Mustafa Kadri, did we get a number there?
1: Oh, um, I don't know if he gives a an exact number, but uh, the article does say, according to an analysis published last year by The Guardian, more than mm-hmm. sixty five hundred migrant workers died in Qatar during the decade after FIFA handed it the World Cup, which to um, be
2: clear, is almost certainly a massive undercount especially Mm -hmm. because the Qatari government has been at pains to classify almost every death of a migrant worker as happening via natural causes. Now, whether those natural causes are, for example, you faint and die from working in heat that nobody is going to be able to sustain, um, that's an open question because God knows Qatar is in no hurry to answer it. And in case, you know, even if you take those out, We've got deaths by suicide, deaths by being electrocuted because a cable, a live wire, hits water in your room that shouldn't be there. Uh, We've got workers being found on their dorm room floors. We've got people whose suspension belts give way and they plummet to their deaths. So you've got every single possible kind of horrible way to die after horrible mistreatment at the hands of contractors, some of whom are directly owned, by the way, by the Cotterbury royal family, so they can't even claim separation there, any kind of plausible deniability. They're the people punching these deals. They're the people bringing these workers over, treating them like crap, hiding them from the inspectors, who, of course, don't want to see any of this anyway, and then getting them killed.
3: They have complete authority there, um, and there's no widespread international interest in challenging that in like an international court, for example, like imagine like just the absolute undertaking that that would be and how they probably wouldn't be able to uncover anything because the people in charge have absolute authority over what documents get retained. So there's not going to be any hard evidence. It's just going to be these horrible stories that we have to live with.
2: And because this is 2022, the Qatari government has been especially uh, insistent that it is taking these issues seriously and that they don't want labor abuses and that there is a Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy that workers can report to and whistleblow to and that they will make sure that those abuses are followed up on. Because I'm sure when you're a functionary of a government agency that is explicitly created for this world cup uh, and will be dissolved probably 12 minutes after it's over that you can definitely go toe to toe with the contracting company that is massively profitable and owned by the guy who is the head of state and government around here yeah that's definitely going to happen
3: I think it really highlights, like, how effective, like, a complex bureaucracy is at hiding serious issues like this, whether it's human rights abuses by private contractors or human rights abuses by a government. Like, when you have this complex network of, like, committees and, you know, reporting agencies and stuff like that, like, it, you know, you give the illusion of doing something you've created this like potemkin village of regulatory bodies that are going to stop this but of course they don't but they can say like oh well we have this regulatory body its efficacy is never really made it as a major part of the conversation um because of course it exists so what else could we possibly be doing here so
2: and if you and and if you complain about this when you didn't get as annoyed about Russia or whatever. I believe in one of these articles, the Qataris straight up call it racist to be this concerned over the World Cup.
1: To give another quote from them, uh, responding to the allegation that as many as 6,500 migrant workers may have died as the result of inhumane labor conditions, representatives from the Qatar's labor ministry have stated that, quote, no other country has come so far on labor reform in such a short amount of time but we acknowledge that there's more work to be done which is straight out of like the PR playbook for any fortune 500 company much less a country
3: yeah it's very much like sorry our bad we're just we're just trying really hard here and we don't know what else to do because we're baby
0: we're just
2: little guys
3: yeah but so, come on you know and if you Ugh. if you say, well, then you shouldn't have given the World Cup to a country that is clearly not prepared to host it, then they say, like, well, you don't want us to succeed, you know.
2: Right. And I think that's actually one of the most insidious things about sports watching this idea that because sports can produce the kind of genuine emotion, because in many ways, you know, I, I know several people who got into labor politics because they followed a union fight in NBA, MLB, whatever they they sort of take that individual reaction and they try to turn it into a geopolitical thing. Oh, well, we have to give uh, these countries things like the World Cup or the Olympics because otherwise we're, we're never going to shine a light on these labor abuses. This is how it moves forward because sunlight is the best disinfectant.
3: <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's very true. Uh, and something that I hear a lot in women's sports, like at, if you criticize like... Labor issues in women's sports, for example, people say like, oh, well, why are you only talking about the negatives? Don't you want them to succeed? You know, it's it's very much like this. It's an expert reversal to try to get you to ignore the problem.
1: Just to set aside for a moment the immense uh, human rights abuses there, uh, there is also, uh, it's been noted, issues for fans attending the World Cup in Qatar because this is a very popular thing for people to go to. In any time it's held, anywhere it's held, Qatar is a country where alcohol consumption is officially illegal, and there have been carve outs made for fans attending the World Cup. But even now, a week before the tournament, people are still very unclear about what exactly is allowed and what is not. Uh, There have been official members of the Qatari government asking fans to respect the country's practices by hiding their homosexuality or not being in public with their partners if they choose to attend. These are things that people mentioned again at the time in 2010 and now we're here a week away from the thing kicking off.
3: Yeah, noting that uh, homosexuality in Qatar I believe is potentially punishable by six years in prison. So, you know, if that may not just obviously affect fans, like that could affect players, staff, support staff, basically anybody entering the country has reason to be afraid at this point.
2: And uh, we were talking in the last segment about athletes and staff and so on. And um, for reasons I don't particularly want to get into, I sort of became a fan of the Welsh soccer team. Uh, This year, and they qualified for the first time since 1958, Uh, and they have a prominent LGBT supporters group called the Rainbow Wall, Um, and apparently several – the players are attending, obviously, but apparently several coaches and support staff are not going in protest of that because you have an entire country that has decided their their compromise policy is have you tried not being gay, and in, in 2022, that's not really workable anymore. So um the head of Welsh football actually made a point to say you know we are going to be thinking of these fans as we go we we didn't want to we didn't think a full boycott would be worth it but that uh people got to make these decisions and if they're if, if this is going to weigh on their conscience then we'd rather they stay home and and sh- show their support that way which again you can argue they should be doing more you should argue they should be doing more Because I do think one of the problems that we have with things like boycotts and and that kind of thing is that these things require sacrifice. That's the whole point. Like when Lewis Hamilton wears that pride helmet, he's not actually sacrificing money or prestige. And I'm sorry, but it's Lewis Hamilton. It's not a no-name racer uh, in, I don't follow F1, but like in a fourth tier circuit. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most famous racers in the whole world. He can afford to take a hit. It sucks, and I'm not denying that it sucks, but we ask regular people who are not involved with sports to sacrifice on a regular basis to support their politics. And maybe this is not not the good side of sports watching, but like if, if it means that people realize that there's gotta be more than just a rhetorical commitment to their values when it conflicts with athletics, then that I think is a good thing. But maybe I'm I'm getting into the posse too early.
1: There's been a bit of um, pushing and pulling of the line as far as protest and what's permissible and what's not by even national teams that want to, you know, express some at least ambivalence about the whole thing. And FIFA, which is an entity that has long tried to portray, you know, the field as entirely apolitical, as wholly unrelated from politics, as, you know. FIFA wants nothing less than for uh, politics to get involved with its sport, You know, setting aside all the ways in which, again, obviously it's involved. Um, this is an article from Reuters uh, just last week. FIFA has written to World Cup teams urging them to focus on the soccer in Qatar and not to let the sport be dragged into ideological or political, quote, battles. The letter from FIFA President Gianni Infantino and the Governing body Secretary General Fatma Samora follows a number of protests made by World Cup teams on issues ranging from LGBTIQ rights to concerns over the treatment of migrant workers. Please, let's now focus on the football, Sky News quoted Infantino and Samora saying in the letter to the 32 nations contesting the World Cup. I hate this man. Yeah, like this is the stance they want these teams to make. Um, uh, The Danish national team has been one of the more vocal in a way. Um, One of the jerseys they will be wearing at the World Cup is um, just all black directly as like a kind of like a black armband for the workers who have died and everybody else who is suffering as a result of this World Cup. And FIFA is uh, trying to push back against the idea of them actually wearing them at the tournament. Um, the The jerseys themselves are made by uh, manufacturer Hummel. Uh, Nike and Adidas have made no such protest kits. I'll, I'll note. So that's where we're at now: is you know, protest jerseys and possibly like warm up T shirts, like. You know, somebody will, there will probably be a player who lifts up his jersey to reveal a protest t-shirt after scoring a goal during this tournament. And that player will probably be punished for having done so. And But, it's like, inevitably that's going to happen.
3: One thing I am kind of curious about is whether um, the athletes and the teams that are going to this are as concerned with the human rights abuses with labor as they are with the anti-queer issue. Um, Because I definitely think they probably deserve equal weight in these conversations. And, you know, I think that's another, um, another kind of angle of sports washing is, you know, sports kind of putting this veneer of acceptance and, you know, inclusion when they aren't actually inclusive or kind of using the the identity politics angle of, you know, say, queer acceptance or like anti-racism, but only purely from, you know, an identity or aesthetic perspective, not from a material perspective. Um, so that they can kind of take that social justice stance and use it kind of as part of their, marketing or as part of their like kind of brand appeal in a way. Um, Not that I don't think that players kind of participating in this is a bad thing. And I think players like standing up for queer people, standing up for trans people, standing up for communities of color and against police violence, like all of that is good, but I do think it has historically lacked a material component in its criticism And I would be I'd be very curious and very interested to see whether there's any protest about like the abuses of migrant labor at this World Cup by anybody, because I think that that would be that would be even more powerful, I think, because it's not something that has a potential marketing component to it, you know, or like a potential like that's not a feel good story. Whereas you can make a feel-good story out of, you know, I, th- I think an LGBTQ pride thing, that could be a feel-good story. But saying, like, by the way, like, the facility that you're playing in was uh, built on the backs of oh, at least 6,500 dead migrant workers. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know where I'm going with that thought. I think that's the thought. But, yeah, like, we're not we're not always as concerned with the material effects when we're doing protest. And I think that's something that should be noted as we think about potential protests for this world cup.
2: No. And I I think you're dead on because very cynically, right? Even that narrative of athletes standing up for LGBT people in a country that treats them horribly is, is, still. Like in a weird way, a winning narrative for the sport as a whole. It allows them to say, "Yeah, we awarded the World Cup to this place where, uh, LGBT people are the subjects of human rights abuses, along with everyone else, but they're certainly worse there." Um, but these athletes got to stand up and use their voices and be loud in support of them. And isn't that amazing? What sports can do and what athletes can do, and so on. And you're absolutely right that there's just no spin. No one can put on a similar protest on behalf of the migrant workers who have died trying to do this. There's just nothing you can say to that. Johnny Infantino is obviously not what you would call a rhetorical master, uh, given what you just read of that letter, Ryan. But there's absolutely no no one could make that sound like a win for soccer. No one could make that sound like, a, as you said, Zoe, a feel-good story which is why it would be if that did not happen, that that might be some of the most amazing stuff we've seen since, you know, the 1968 Olympics. Um, so, you know, if you're a U S soccer player and um, you're listening to this,
1: just saying
3: balls in your court.
1: Yeah, I do think we have a couple of players in our audience. I'm sure. Um, j- just one final note on sort of this whole subject, but also FIFA's, um, unique stance towards politics in its game. Um, This is a BBC article about the Danish uh, jerseys. The Danish Football Federation asked if its players could wear shirts with the words, human rights for all. World (laughs) football's governing body prohibits all political messages and has asked teams to focus on football and would not allow the shirts. So (laughs) there you go
2: heard it here first, folks. FIFA opposes human rights.
3: For all. Maybe for some.
1: You know, a radical statement. You know, again, not even something that is all that aggressive in its tone or direct in what it's talking about, but it's not something that FIFA will allow or acknowledge. It's too far. Um, we're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to Try and find a positive spin on a subject that frankly isn't very positive.
3: You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Weo. Now back to the show.
1: Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still Mm -hmm. hi, y'all. And Zoe. Hello. On today's show, we've been discussing the very broad subject of sports washing in light of the World Cup, which is about to start in the country of Qatar, a process that has been ridden with uh, bribery and slavery and any number of other crimes, uh, just not a good scene and this is the part of the show where i get to offload the really tough questions onto my co hosts i I get to ask you how do we fix everything that we just talked about because boy all that seems bad
3: i think one of the most important things would really be like radically transformative on a global scale and maybe would never is never going to happen. But I just feel the need to say it anyway, which is that like these international bidding processes need to actually be focused on, you know, the human rights and the material concerns that come with hosting an event on this scale. Like if we're going to keep having big events like this on a global scale, which Who's to say whether we're going to keep doing this? Like, society may not last that long. You know, we never know. In 100 years, we might not be able to do this anymore. Planet might be underwater. But if we're going to do this, we should actually, like, make these concerns part of the bidding process and not have it be driven by, like, all of these dark money forces. How do we get that to happen? I think that players and staff need to take a more active role in pushing for things like this to happen. Like we need to keep empowering players' unions and workers' unions involved in sports and make sure that their voices are heard. And we need to keep protesting stuff like this as well so that they can hopefully get at least enough of a ding from the bad bad publicity to think twice. You know, that's kind of the the surface level like what we could actually do, I think.
2: And the good news there is that that has a track record of working. I mean, in the last couple of years, in in twenty twenty, the uh, NBA players went on a what essentially amounted to a wildcat strike uh, in the middle of the bubble season, and until certain telephone calls were made, uh, looked like they were going to have some pretty radical demands for the league, uh, which was kind of amazing to see. Then you, it, especially in the middle of you know COVID uh, being a thing then you've also got more recently in the uh in the nwsl there was a report into um abuse uh, by coaches and so on and i think it focused on three teams but it's kind of more about the systemic culture that enabled that to happen and that happened because of a player's union being able to collectivize and and hold together so we we know that That piece of it works. We know that protests, when sustained and focused, can work. They've defeated a U.S. Olympic bid before, and there's currently an effort to get, I think, Los Angeles 2028 to back out of doing that, which would be incredible to see that happen. But either way, I guess where I'm going with this is that we know that this works on a certain scale. The question is, how much can you magnify that and maintain the impact of it um, because I think it is necessary I this is only going to get worse if it continues to succeed which it short term looks like it will
3: I was just reminded again of um, and I probably talked about this on the show before but it was I think the 2017 um, IIHF Women's World Championships in Hockey where Basically, like every player from the United States said that they would not play until they had better representation and funding from USA Hockey. And that at least brought USA Hockey to the table. Like these events don't happen without high caliber players. So if you do have like a widespread player protest, I think that would change the game a lot. Of course, that would require the powers to actually be the players to actually be empowered to do that kind of protest and to actually care. I mean, we don't know how many of people actually really care about this. But assuming that they do have at least a cursory interest or concern in human rights abuses generally, and we know that athlete populations do tend to have strong feelings about stuff like this, then I think a player protest or some kind of collective action organized by players could be very impactful, because if you don't have high-caliber players, no one's going to want to watch, and that upsets advertisers, that upsets all the stakeholders. So that's, I think, where the real power lies in this situation, is with the players.
1: Noah, you had made brief mention of this... um... The reason LA is hosting the Olympics in 2028 is because Boston effectively got protested into pulling out of the process. Boston was originally selected by the U.S. Olympic Committee as its sort of representative bid for the, uh, at the time, 2024 Olympics. There was a switcheroo in the works, at, at any rate. And Boston could not muster any public support among People who actually live there for actually the task of hosting a massive event like the Olympics, which requires being able to host thousands upon thousands of tourists, being able to build all these new sports venues that might not have much of a use after the games are gone. And frankly, it requires more adequate public transportation than Boston has. Yeah.
3: I, I lived in Boston when all of this was going on and I was working in the South End at the time, which basically part of the plan, I think, was to like flatten huge portions of the South End, which are either like industrial areas or like working class neighborhoods to build these new venues. And everyone in the South End was like, uh, what? <laughs> excuse me? Like there was really no like thought or concern given into that. So you basically just had the entire city saying like, no, we can't do this. We don't have the space for it. And I can't even get to work on the MBTA. Like, how do you plan to do this in less than 10 years? Like it's not going to happen. So yeah, a unified front from citizens as well is definitely, definitely can be very powerful.
2: Was, I'm sorry random boss of i know was marty walsh the mayor for that yes i, I think yeah. so yeah oh, so the current united states secretary of labor yeah <laughs> that just guy. to bring everything back full circle right there yeah fun amazing
3: yeah no he sucks
1: on that note i i think we're, we're just about out of time for this week's episode i it's fun that we can end on uh, the note of marty walsh sucking um again <laughs> For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Zoe. I was Noah. And this is Punching Out.
0: You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to PunchingOutWayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.